This is Vietnam and Boba. I'm Sein Nguyen. COP26 was the most anticipated climate conference in years. People came all over the world to express concerns, and countries delivered promises to address one particular problem with many many problems that come with it and try to find a way forward. But unlike the previous 25 COPs, we're actually in the era of delivery, not just mere sayings. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline in yours. You could and should witness a wonderful recovery. That desperate hope is why the world is looking to you and why you are here. Countries and leaders were put on the spot at COP26 where they were obligated to commit to things. Vietnam in particular made ambitious pledges. Prime Minister Phạm Minh Chính announced that the country would become net zero by 2050. Cùng với sự hợp tác và hỗ trợ của cộng đồng quốc tế, nhất là các nước đang phát triển, kể cả tài chính và chuyển giao công nghệ, trong đó thực hiện các cơ chế theo thỏa thuận Paris để đạt mức phát thải ròng bằng không vào năm 2050. Well, Vietnam is among some 40 countries that issued new pledges to phase out coal during the first week of the COP26 summit. It pledged to stop building new coal power plants by the 2030s. Coal currently provides about 50% of the country's power, but it remains unclear how it will deliver on the pledge when it's struggling to meet growing energy demand. Indeed, it is still unclear how Vietnam, a signatory of the Paris Agreement 2015, would deliver its promises to become net zero in a few decades. But before any big shot pledges was shouted from the high-profile podiums, many environment changemakers in Vietnam have been taking action and exerting influence in their own communities, be they environmental activists or caretakers of rescue wild animals. So then I was really doing a lot of work with um, the youth uh, climate advocate community there, trying to alleviate their voice. Because um, I do think I have, um, you know, I, I love writing again. So I was doing this report that was like um, a UNDP Vietnam project. And they wanted to find someone who can accurately capture, um, you know, what is the state of youth climate action in Vietnam? What do young people care about? What have they done? What do they want to accelerate um, in terms of their action and how can they best be supported. When I myself reveals the suffering of animals, like when joining to rescue the confiscated animal from illegal trade, and, and also like, um, you know, like, um, witness firsthand the suffering of the animal kept in conditions like not suited to their species. For example, like when I have uh, some visit at the bear farming uh, where I see kind of like the bear were kept in in tiny cage. In a fast-growing economy where most people eye lucrative jobs in business and finance, these women stand out. Today on Vietnam and Boba, we are bringing you first-hand accounts of two environment frontliners, one from northern rural Vietnam and the other from southern urban Vietnam with two vastly different backgrounds and drastically different approaches but sharing a common value. I first met Hoàng Ngoc Xuân Mai last year in a journalism workshop about energy and climate change in Vietnam when she was working as Southeast Asia lead for Climate Tracker, an international nonprofit which trains and supports climate journalism globally. 
Born and raised in cosmopolitan Saigon, she is composed, articulate, and engaging, and she emits a strong sense of maturity, though she looks quite young. The then 18-year-old activist, yes, you heard me correctly, 18, was being humble about providing training from a place of authority to people much more senior than her. She got a scholarship to study in the U.S. since middle school, came back to Vietnam working as a freelance climate journalist and coordinating Vietnam's first ever special report on youth climate action with the United Nations Development Program, or UNDP Vietnam, before recently enrolling in Harvard University. Um, so coming back a little bit to the report, um, mm-hmm. I, I know that in May this year, you and your team had a chance to meet with COP26 president, mm-hmm. designate Mr. Alok Sharma, who was also the UK Minister of State at the Cabinet Office, and handed him the report. Um, I know he only stayed in Vietnam quite shortly. Yeah. Well, I'm very pleased to be here in Hanoi as uh, a part of uh, the COP26 work that I'm doing. Uh, and uh, it's been great to meet with ministers and government, uh, to meet with Prime Minister Ching, uh, fellow ministers, with business leaders, and of course, youth and society groups as well. Do you think Vietnam's youth um, priorities and initiatives have been uptaken in the COP26 process and in key decision-making agenda? Yeah, so actually at the, so I attended the pre-COP in Italy this year, which was the like negotiations prior to the COP um, and got a chance to quickly speak with um, Mr. Arlok Sharma aside from a couple of other youth leaders there as well. Um, it was really cool because he still, so this was in uh, October, wait, no, sorry, September, late September, like October 1st. Um, and he still remembered the report that we handed to him in May. So um, that I was very pleasantly surprised, I guess. It shows that he um, clearly cared about what young Vietnamese people, um, I mean, the fact that he traveled to Vietnam and like despite really try to meet with us in person i think that was a very momentous event um and i mean youth activism this year and youth presence in terms of the narratives yeah i think it's been stronger than it has ever been before um and i do think that just like in terms of the language of the Glasgow Climate Pact, um, there were a lot of references to youth um, compared to previous like COP decisions. Um, so I, I guess for some background context, like for every UN climate negotiation, um, there's a like decision, a, a COP decision that is produced by the end. Um, so this year's decision is called the Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, but I think a general problem, an obstacle with youth engagement and advocacy at these negotiations is like youth captures a lot of media attention for sure. Um, and they show up, a lot of them actually show up on the first days. So COP, as you know, has two weeks. The first week is honestly a lot more like pomp and ceremony, like all of these high-level leaders show up. It's a very political process um, and a very like media, like there's a lot for the media to pick up and um, a lot of different like ceremonies and actions and all of that stuff. So youth has been able to make a big splash in the first week, but then actually a lot of them left. They weren't around for the second week 
or they weren't allowed like in the negotiation rooms um because like if you have a yellow like a yellow badge basically like an observer badge there's a lot of um you can't access most of the technical negotiations um and that's where a lot of the nitty-gritty like how are these things going to be implemented is it going to say you know face out core face down core, like all of that like that's the second week um so i think really for you to be meaningfully involved in policy and the decision that's produced and the articles like article six that was negotiated they need to be part of um party or like party overflow basically like with their country delegation and a lot of countries actually do have this program where um, they train young climate negotiators and put them on the negotiation team and they're able to have access to these negotiations um, and I think that's where young people have been able to make the most substantive input um, in Vietnam we are trying to that's definitely one of the key like demands that um were outlined um in our different dialogues with the government and um, we're still talking about it for next year so i mean hopefully um we can set up something like that in vietnam as well through the youth union um and i guess other um youth uh, official youth groups in vietnam sounds Exciting. A am I yeah. too old to apply for that? <laughs> Can I join? <laughs> I mean, I'm in my late 20s. I'm in my late 20s. I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the youth law defines youth as up to 30. So you still oh, have yay. some time. <laughs> I, still have, I still have a few years. Yay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, keep, I, I'll keep that in mind. Thank mm -hmm. you for the tip. How easy or do you think it's, it's, it's going to be um, possible to, 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 to train such youth um, climate negotiators to essentially debate with policymakers and not just in other countries but also in their respective countries as well in such a political climate? I mean, if you're just talking about debates and conversations with policymakers, they're already happening within the events and the dialogues that have been organized. Um, so actually, funny story, I met the Vietnamese delegate at COP for the first time at COP24 and like back then really did not know um, anything at all really about the world of climate negotiations. Uh, it was really just like going, because I was with Climate Tracker and they were like, interview your country delegation. And I was like, okay i don't know who they are <laughs> just like going around like trying to be like okay who looks vietnamese <laughs> like looking at people with like red or pink badges that looks vietnamese it's honestly kind of funny um and i actually did find um the lead negotiators for vietnam and had like a five minute conversation with them way back then um and for me like as a very young person and i think that was back before that was just when the climate strikes were starting you know so youth were at the cop and were somewhat present in these spaces but um it it, it hasn't become as big of a topic as it is now um so i was like just this young random person who like approached the Vietnamese delegation and was like, hello, like I'm writing about this conference. And they were, obviously they already have um, their own like ministry 
uh, reporters as well. So they were like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> um, but actually, um, they, I, I was surprised by how by how friendly they were, honestly, because they um, they did answer my questions. Like I sent them my articles afterwards, and they were like, "Thanks for writing; it's good." Um, and uh, fast forward, so then I met them again at the uh, like national write shop for the Youth Climate Action Report that UNDP was organizing, um, and it was actually a three day like event where we, they, we, we were all shipped to Guinyan <laughs> in this beautiful, I don't really know, the ICSE, um, like scientific conference place in Guinyan. And the people from uh, the, the DCC, like the negotiators were there with us for like two out of the three days. So they really spent a lot of time um, with youth and listening to what young people had to say and doing um, different trainings and like really, um, so Mr. Tan, who was um, one of the lead negotiators for Vietnam, he was doing a great job of explaining um, NDCs and everything and how all of it worked for young people. And um, he's really like not a condescending person at all. Um, and I have a lot of faith in like, I mean, I might be a little bit, because <laughs> obviously there are a lot of um, structural uh, problems and political sensitivities and all of that. But I think in terms of just like the people who are working on these issues in Vietnam, in the government, I have a lot of faith in them and uh, they've been doing really amazing things. Um, and right now that it's been more established internationally and in Vietnam as well that young people should have a seat at the, t at the table. Um, I think they're open to it, the idea. It's more a question of like, how I, I think so th that's one thing and then pushing for youth to be a part of the delegation is another thing um and yeah working on like what are some of the demands that are more reasonable and feasible um is a longer term process but i have hope in the process itself Maito Mishi and her colleagues in a climate policy circle in vietnam were pleasantly surprised by the country's pledge to be net zero by 2050 but still, there are concerns about how it will actually accomplish this seemingly Herculean task, with particularly the Power Development Plan 8 draft, which basically outlines the power development in Vietnam for the next 10 years. The draft has gone through many revisions in March, October, and most recently, November this year. I think general consensus among, again, climate policy focus uh, and energy policy focus, the the October draft in terms of like reliance on fossil fuel was a lot worse than the March draft. And I think the November draft was going back more to the March draft. So it's better than the October draft. Is it consistent with net zero by 2050? People are saying no. Um, so there's still work to be done um, before that gets finalized. Um, I mean, the fact that the government is taking so long with it honestly gives me hope because that shows that they are listening to the stakeholders. They are listening to um, changes in international policies and also finance, because obviously when talking about um, power development, it, it requires a large sum of money to develop infrastructure um, and technology and everything like that as well. You are not that much older uh, from uh, than uh, Greta Thunberg. I'm one year older than her. Yeah. 
But I see your activism is quite different from hers. I, for, I mean, for right, rightfully mm. so. You can't expect every activist yeah. to be on the speaker and, yeah. and telling the world, how dare you. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? I'm a more institutionalized person. Oops. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? Because I was about to ask about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I've also thought about this a lot, actually. And like to work with and within institutions or how much I want to be, you know, the like moral voice, like shouting um, from from outside or like against institutions. Um, and naturally, I mean, not everyone is going to be the ones, you know, staging um, strikes um, or protests. And some people are going to prefer, you know, being in negotiation rooms and trying to work with policymakers and that kind of stuff. The most important thing is we're all demanding for the same things. The most important thing is we're all demanding for, um, you know, phasing off of fossil fuel, for an energy transition, for net zero and more than net zero, for indigenous rights and environmental justice. It's important that the demands are the same. And then obviously the we need different people to take on different modes of action that are most appropriate for their own background and also the political context in which they inhibit. When we come back away from the spotlight, a trafficked wildlife animal rescuer and caretaker born and raised in rural northern Vietnam makes her own mark in the environmental changemaker community by taking care of bears in a national park. I always try to keep myself motivated by like all the, the things that I learn every day and and sometimes it's just like uh, see the animal back into the wild or like see the animal under my care like recover from in it or just very basically just like very simple you see the bear just like sleeping peacefully on platform in outdoor enclosure kind of it tried trying to motivate myself to to learn more stay with us I reunited with Chị Tạ Thương after years of knowing each other at a bear sanctuary tucked in a national park in northern province Ninh Bình. The sanctuary is run by Four Paws, a global animal welfare organization with an office in Vietnam. As a bear taker at the sanctuary, Thương also provided educational tours for visitors to understand why bears are important to the ecosystem, the vile abuse that has been done to them, and the work her organization has been doing to take care of rescue animals from bear by farms. Bear by is a well sought after ingredient in traditional Vietnamese medicine. In 2005, the Vietnamese government banned the sale and possession of bear by, but there are still many bear farms where most bears are trapped in tiny metal cages and have bile, which is stored in their gallbladders, extracted from them. Organizations like Thuong's help rescue these bears from the farms and bring them to the sanctuary where they are treated physically and mentally and, well, 
given a taste of freedom after years or even decades in cages. To a visitor like me, Thuong was a powerful source of knowledge. But to the bear she cared for, she was sensitive and meticulous. She's particularly fond of one of the bears whom she called Hoa Lan, which means orchid in Vietnamese. We rescued Hoa Lan in August 2018. When brought her to our sanctuary, she had many psychological problems. She had to take medicine to help reduce stress. Um, we had to monitor her closely, provide her quite a lot of appropriate stimulation every day she needed. Um, due to very bad diet at Bai Farm, all her incisors was removed, so we had to blend half of her food to make sure she get enough um, her portion. Hualan was quite uh, sensitive to sound and stranger. One time she went to our enclosure and didn't come back to the bear house for almost two months. So we had to safely approach her, give her an tie, and brought her back. And then give um, close monitor every day to make any different adjustment if needed to build the trust with her and help her happy again. Um, now she let Stret happy with her friend Hua Cha. Uh, with 24-hour access in outdoor enclosure, but we always have to very careful around her. And uh, she's very smart and learn very quickly, so we decide to train her with which apply um, positive reinforcement training. Uh, we never tame the bear. We follow the bear wheel as it's the most effective and safe way to train animal. I have been to your bear sanctuary in Ningbing and it was a very well-kept, friendly and welcoming kind of place and I got to learn a lot about bears thanks to you. Uh, and you mentioned during the tour that this is a place where for bears where you can you really think of it as like a retirement house. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why do you call it a retirement house? Yeah, so as you like, as I mentioned before, like our bear kind of suffering quite a lot of problems, especially the house and also the mental problem as well. So, and like most of our bear were kept in the tiny cage, like since they were cubs. Yeah, so the chance to release them back into the wild is very, very rare. And I think we cannot release them, to be honest, because like it would take quite a lot of time to, um, let's say, to for them to recover from their illness, like some chronic disease. Um, and also, like, you know, like, because they wasn't taken care of uh, by their mother and also not in their habitat, so the survival skill is very limited on even zeros so so it really like it's obviously that they cannot survive in the wire without any skill uh, were tossed from the mother kind of and um, and and the place where we can release the bear actually like now is not in across Vietnam we cannot find any place where like a hundred percent like safe enough for the bear and the other reason is like it will cost quite a lot of money and people need quite a lot of 
people and experts like to make sure that the bear can live uh, like a good life in the in the wild. Not only is it costly to release them back into the wild, it's also extremely costly for bear sanctuaries to care for the bears like that, right? Because they you 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 essentially for those. For most of the bears, you cannot release them into the wild, meaning you would have to take care of them until they can no longer live. That sounds like a lot of investment and support is needed. Yeah, it absolutely like it's costly and and like we need quite a lot of support from other people from the public. Tuong has climbed an uphill battle from working as a volunteer to become the trained wildlife animal checker she is today, despite the lack of access to resources. She grew up in the countryside in Ningbing, where there wasn't and still isn't much encouragement for people to become professionals in the animal welfare field because of the limited domestic teaching capacity. Vietnamese often have to acquire. Knowledge and skills to gain qualification to work in this field using foreign education sources, either in Vietnam or by studying abroad, which oftentimes mean having a decent English competence. For people like Thuong, these access are luxury. So the main challenges for myself, like, is like limited resources to access, like because I living in kind of a remote areas and. And and the chance to access the resources, uh, it's it's very rare. And the other main thing is like we living in in kind of the place where everyone very close by. Um, they just think English is just a subject, just a learning link that means just to pass the exam or get high score. That's it. And like um, and also because like. At that time in Ningbing, is like we cannot find any English center, or even like they have had any English center. I I cannot like I couldn't not like afford tuition fee, so to learn English is mostly just like from I just have to self study and and like from um different like uh way in in many way and um and yeah so. To get over it, a uh, so my key point is just learning by doing, um, and because now at this time like of the internet, so just make use of internet to accept the learning resources. After about three years of hard work at the sanctuary, Tuong found rewards in moments when she sees the bears under her care, like Hualan orchid, recover from the illnesses or swimming and poking at each other. In the sanctuary pond, with their round bellies facing the sky. The other thing is like I always like keep in mind that like not afraid of like being wrong or criticized or or being like criticized. So I always trying to keep myself motivated by like all the the thing that I learn every day. And last but not least is I always like. Straightforward and focus on on the field that I interested in, and keep my mind open to learn new thing. This episode was written and produced by me with the editing of Sang Fam. If you like it, please tell a friend about it and help them subscribe to our show. Vietnam and Boba is calling for patrons. 
Running an independent project of this length and depth is difficult, but we want to be independent from advertising and continue to publish stories about Vietnam's cultural and socioeconomic issues told by local people and long-term residents in the country. If you're interested, please find us at buymeacoffee.com/vietnamboba and well, buy us a boba. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Sen Nguyen, and this is Vietnam and Boba. <laughs>